All right, this is lesson two, being led by the scriptures. Lesson two, we, we started teaching on our first lesson about how to be led by God. Our first lesson was covered last Sunday night. If you need the lesson, you can get it after class this morning. But lesson one, we covered Sunday night, and we are making a distinction in how to be led by God versus how to be led by the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is a unique and distinct set of leadings in and of itself. And coming through our charismatic Word of Faith revival, everything be, became the Holy Spirit. And in being led that way and emphasizing that, we left off all the other ways that we were intended by God to be led. And it honestly, in being led by the Holy Spirit, it made a whole generation of fruitcakes. And everybody was like, the Spirit said this, and the Spirit said that, and the Spirit, well, I don't care, the Holy Spirit told me. But that became a, a doctrine or a teaching that needed to be pruned and curbed. And even our church was guilty of being fruitcakey. Maybe not everybody every time, but enough of it that it was like Christmas time around here, very fruitcakey. And so when I decided to write these lessons, I decided to expand it to get back to a balanced teaching on being led by God. God is a trinity, three persons, one essence. And God the Father leads different than God the Son leads and is different from God the Holy Spirit. And then there's uh, four other ways that we're led as well. So this begins our in-depth looking at how we're led by God. And so this lesson number two is what I would call, this is my judgment and I don't think you can debate me, the first and foremost way we are led by God is not by the Holy Spirit. It's not by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by the Holy Scriptures. Because the Lord Jesus is not always speaking but the scriptures are. The Holy Spirit is not always speaking, but the scriptures are. There are seasons even in the scriptures when the Holy Spirit goes silent, but the word of God lives and abides forever. So let's jump in here because I'm going to get ahead of myself in this teaching, and I've written it, I think, in the best way that I could come up with. We've begun our study of the seven leadings of God. This lesson will cover the first two leadings on our list. Actually, this lesson will cover the first leading on our list, this thing expanded so quickly, uh, we cut off the second one. This lesson will cover the first leading on our list, being led by the Scriptures. We have addressed the church's focus on being led by the Holy Spirit while perhaps neglecting the other ways we can be led by God. And this is critical to understand because if we were always, and some of us, many of us were, if we were always looking for the voice, we would totally ignore the Scriptures. But the quickest way to hear from God is open up your Bible. The quickest way for God to speak to you is to open up your Bible and read it out loud. God's Word is God speaking to you and me. Even the genealogies, even the Levitical laws, you open that up, that is God Almighty speaking to you. Amen. We wanted something a little bit more spooktacular to look like we were mystical gurus. Uh, the Lord spoke to me, and the Baptist said, well, the Lord doesn't talk to me. I just happen to know the entire Bible. And the Charismatics didn't know the Bible, and that's why they got so goofy. <laughs> we acknowledge that ultimately the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of God and therefore is God, is instrumental in each of our seven leadings. We acknowledge that. Yet we must still distinguish their individual mechanics. We can see the Holy Spirit involved in each of the seven leadings as follows. So our number one way we're led is by the Scriptures, yet the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. Yet Jesus is the Word, the Scriptures made flesh. 
He, Jesus, is the spirit of truth, while God's word is the truth, or the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and yet God's word is the truth. So we see the Trinity involved there. Number two, being led by wisdom. The number two way we're led by God is by the wisdom of God. Wisdom is always crying out, though the Holy Spirit is not. Being led by wisdom, but the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. Number three, being led by peace. <laughs> There's always peace or no peace. Yet the Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace, producing the fruit of the spirit called peace. And Jesus is the prince of peace. And so we see the Holy Spirit in operation in being led by peace. Number four, being led by the Holy Spirit. We skip over for obvious reasons. Number five, following the leading, uh, the leading of preachers. Preachers are anointed by the Holy Spirit to oversee, guide, and give watch over our souls. So being led by preachers or following their teaching and their instruction, that is still a work of the Holy Spirit, though we distinguish the operation, the mechanic of it. Number six is being led by the word of the Lord. Uh, though this is Christ's authoritative leading, it is still manifested via the medium of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and by medium, we don't mean anything psychic or uh, transcendental like that. We just mean uh, that's the medium by which he's transferring that. And then number seven, being led by the voice of God Almighty. Alas, he is a trinity, and his spirit is the spirit of God. And so we can see, we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is at work in each one of these seven leadings, but they're all distinct and individual. Because remember, we rightly divide the word of truth. We rightly divide it. We distinguish it so we can understand the mechanics of it. Now, once we're done with all this teaching, we can back up and say the Holy Spirit is leading us. But I want us to understand that first and foremost, we have to be led by the word of God. We can clearly see that the Holy Spirit is involved in each of these leadings, yet they all stand unique and divided. Though we could easily mix all these above together, let us now begin to rightly divide and study the individual leadings of God, starting with the scriptures. This is why I emphasize over and over again that you must know your Bible. Any Christian that doesn't know their Bible is out of the will of God in that arena. Any Christian that doesn't know their Bible is negligent. Any Christian that doesn't study their Bible is lazy. Any Christian that doesn't study their Bible is going to suffer things they never have to suffer. It is, it is to your benefit that you know the Bible. And we all have been given the same number of hours in the day. We've all been given a good brain and an intellect. We've all been given a Bible, access to a Bible. And if you have a smartphone or the internet, access to every interpretation of the Bible ever transcribed or translated. The difference between a Bible student and a Bible ignorant, ignoramus, is laziness. Maybe laziness and hunger. And now the only reason you don't study your Bible is you're lazy and not hungry. That's the only reason you don't know your Bible. You're lazy. We might have a third one, undisciplined. You've got to be disciplined, hungry, and diligent. And if you'll study the Bible a little bit every day, it will begin to compound your knowledge of God. But you must know your Bible. Now, we've said over and over again, women are given more to prayer and a lot less to the Bible studies. Men tend to be given more to Bible study and a lot less to prayer. And we have to balance this. We must both, male and female, be people of prayer and people of the Scriptures. You pray better when you know the Bible better, and you'll know the Bible better when you pray because they work hand in hand. With over 31,000 verses, 613 Old Testament commandments, and 1,050 New Testament commandments, if studied and embraced, the Bible will produce a very broad foundation for what to do in life. 
if studied and embraced, you don't study it like a, the, um, like a, um, a scholar or study it like an academic, just to knowledge, just to have knowledge. Like some people, they read all the holy texts in the world, all the sacred texts. That doesn't do anything for them but puff their mind up. We study it to know our God. We study it to know his heart. We study it to know how he dealt with mankind. We study it because in these scriptures are contained all the knowledge we need for salvation. In fact, direction isn't required where the scriptures are clear. And I want you to understand that. Direction is not required where the scriptures are clear. If the Bible says, thou shalt not fornicate, you don't need direction. Right there it says, don't fornicate. If the scripture says, thou shalt not kill, you don't need to pray about that. Don't kill. If the scriptures say, don't steal the tithe, you don't have to pray about that. You just don't steal the tithe. It may be that many Christians fail to be led by God because they have neglected to study their Bible. You must know your Bible. You must know your Bible. You must know your Bible. There's no excuse for not spending a little bit of time every day in your Bible. There's no excuse, no excuse, no excuse. If you're an empty nester, you have zero excuse why you can't spend an extra 30 minutes to an hour of the day in the Scriptures. If you're a retiree, you ought to be able to spend three or four hours a day in the Word. You ought to know your God better than anybody because you're old and you're supposed to have walked with Him longer. Amen. So let's look at what the Bible says about itself. This is Psalm 19. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. Do you see that by all these words, all these synonyms for the word of God, the servant of God is warned. Just by knowing the commandments, just by knowing the statutes, just by knowing the law, you're warned. Just by feeding on the word of God, you should be a better caliber of human being. By feeding on this word, you will rise above your culture, your mom, your dad, your past, your present. By feeding on the word of God, you will be changed. By feeding on the word of God, you will be changed. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. Now, if your life is going nowhere, this verse reveals why. You don't keep the word of God. In keeping the word of God, there is great reward. Not mediocre reward, not Upper Cumberland reward, not Tennessee reward, great reward. Psalm 19 makes several declarations about God's word. It converts, it imparts wisdom, it rejoices, it enlightens, it warns, and when kept, it rewards. These are all ways that we're led. Converting is a leading. Impart, impartation of wisdom is a leading. A wisdom tells you what to do in time of need. It rejoices. Sometimes that's what you need to do uh, well, Lord, what do I do? The Lord will tell you, just rejoice, but the Word of God will be saying that to you. It enlightens. That's how we get more wisdom. That's how we get direction as our eyes are opened. It warns. 
and when kept it rewards. Look at Psalm 119, 105, one of the best psalms on this subject. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What better way to describe the word of God than a, a light for your direction? If you don't have this light, you'll stub your toe and not even know what you hit. You'll trip and not even know what tangled you up. You have to keep the word of God first and foremost in your life. One of the things wise parenting experts tell parents in this day and age is that your children should have to earn screen time. That means before they can play a game, before they can play something on an iPod, before they can waste any of their soulish time in the internet, in the ethereal realm of digital technology, they should earn it. They should read for an hour. They should pray for an hour. They should read their Bible for an hour and have a conversion where maybe one hour of reading gives you 20 minutes of video games. It's good discipline. You don't like it because you're an American because you know if you hold your kids to it, you should hold yourself to it, and you're not willing to do that. I'm working on a book called Fat, Broken, Crazy, all about self-control. This nation doesn't know anything about moderation or self-discipline. And our lives could be so much better if we had some moderation and self-control. You ought to be able to give more time to God than you do social media, than you do entertainment, than you do sports. And you can disagree with me, but your life would be better if you gave more of your life to God. We're not against social media. We're not against sports. We're not against entertainment or video games. But when it outweighs your time with God, your life looks like a pagan. And that's what we're trying to fix as a pastor. You shouldn't be born again, have the Holy Ghost in the Word, and live like the Upper Cumberland. You should be better. And if you have the Word of God really working in your life, you won't smell anything like the world. You won't think anything like the world. You won't be amused by anything the world has to offer. This famous verse contains a very simple truth. God's Word provides light for where we are going and what we are doing. Without that light, we walk in darkness and know not at what we stumble. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 in the Century Standard Bible, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching or doctrine, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This passage reveals four abilities of God's word. That's all scriptures. And honestly, when Timothy was written, there was no New Testament. This passage reveals four abilities of God's word. God's word is profitable for, number one, teaching sound doctrine. That's why you should be in your Bible so that you know sound doctrine. We went out to eat last night at one of our local restaurants and to look around I noticed that 70% of the people in the restaurant were morbidly obese. Tattoos everywhere. The smell of cigarettes and vaping everywhere. I was honestly, this is my region and I'm called to change it, but I was honestly, I was, I was really disappointed in America and in this Christian religious region. These were families morbidly obese, covered in tattoos, lesbians and transgender people all around me in this restaurant in Cookville. Behind us sat a 400-pound shim, 
Not sure if it was a man or a woman until it spoke up. Then I realized it was a woman, but had hair cut closer than mine and looked like an obese 14-year-old boy. And I told my family that I was with, I said, this is the result of social media discipleship. This is what is tolerable today because this Christian region is discipled by social media and not the scriptures. And they all have a Bible available to them, but they'd rather be discipled by what social media is pressuring them and media and entertainment. They want to be cool. They want to be liked. So they'll swallow the damnable pill to be liked, even though they'll curse their children and their grandchildren and even their marriage. And I, I honestly, I was uncomfortable in a restaurant in my own town. I was grieved at the filth. And yet it's because the church doesn't want the Bible anymore. It's too much work. You have got to make time for daily Bible study or your addiction to social media will send you to hell. You'll deny Christ, wee, 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 all the way burning. The scriptures are profitable to teach sound doctrine. It's not just my job to teach you sound doctrine. You should be working out your own curriculum, working out your own doctrine, working out your own salvation. It's your job. You've got to be doing this. Doctrine is not just what we believe, it's what we live. We can change our entire life by studying the Bible and living sound Bible doctrine. Not just believing it, but living sound Bible doctrine. We can change our entire life if we would just live what we claim we believe. Number two, sound doctrine, or excuse me, the scriptures are good for rebuking. A good rebuke is hard to find. But if you're dangerously wrong, you can count on the word of God rebuking you and correcting your life just by reading it. Number three, the scriptures are good for correction. Correction adjusts your path. It adjusts your direction. It adjusts your trajectory. If you're off course, the word of God will get you back on course. This is a leading of God. Number four, the the passage says that studying the scriptures will train you in righteousness. Training brings understanding, purpose, and direction. Studying the scriptures will give us these three needful things. It will give us understanding. It will give us purpose. It will give us direction. Instruction trains us and tells us what to do. When you're trained, it tells you what to do next. Stop, drop, and roll. That's training. What do I do if I'm on fire? Don't run. Stop, drop, and roll. But if all you do is study social media... You won't know what to do when you're on fire. Social media will teach you to set yourself on fire and then run through a department store. Allowing the scriptures to produce these four works in our life will complete us and equip us for every good work. Christians who lack good works in their life reveal they aren't students or doers of the word of God. Christians who lack good works in their life. Good works isn't like isn't like putting shoes on kids in Africa. That's a work. A good work is whatever the scriptures command you to do. There's a lot of works out there, but this is defining scriptural works. There's a lot of feel-goodism out there, a lot of social justice out there, but if we're talking about the scriptures, then the scriptures train us to do good works that God calls good. Otherwise, it's just dead works. And Hebrews 6 tells us the gospel teaches us to repent from dead works. Dead works are anything God hasn't told you to do. Dead works are you trying to earn righteousness. Dead works are you trying to feel good for social media's sake. If you brag about it on social media, you get no reward for it. In fact, uh, most Americans, I'd say 95% of Americans are not mature enough to be on social media. 
It is a, a middle school for immature adult women. And that's all social media is in this nation. Overseas, it's used as a good tool. Here, it's just a middle school for immature adult women. Emotionally needy, looking for an acceptance, looking for a like or a hit or whatever. No need to pray. That's the subject of our next title. No need to pray when we know the scriptures. When the scriptures are clear, we don't have to pray in that area. That does not diminish prayer at all. But when I know the Bible, I don't have to pray about that area. Like we said, if the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery, I don't have to pray about that. I just do the word. Prayer for God's direction is necessary only when his will is not known. God's will is revealed in the Bible. Studying the Bible can fill many gaps in our knowledge of his will. Now, granted, God is revealed in his holy scriptures, but it's 66 books, 31,000 verses. It's not an infinite book. It's a book about the infinite God. It's inspired by the infinite spirit of God, but it's, it's finite. And I don't mean that with any heresy or disrespectful intent, but we understand if we can tangibly hold it, it's a finite book. It's God revealing to us in our limited capacity. We'll spend eternity studying the scriptures because they live and abide forever, but they, it fills in the gaps of what we don't know here and there. Studying the Bible can fill many gaps in our knowledge of his will. The scriptures help to build guides and parameters in our life. Once those parameters are established and sure, no prayer may ever need to be offered in those areas again because we'll know the will of God. For example, abstain from all appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Abstain from all, every appearance of evil. If it looks evil, don't do it. Don't go anywhere near it. I was talking to a young man this week. We do business with him. And he likes me a lot. He knows I'm a pastor. He was raised in church. And so he's all excited about getting engaged. And I said, well, how are you going to do it, man? How are you going to propose? He said, well, I was thinking about, we, we've been wanting to go out, uh, take a road trip. And I thought I'd propose to her out there. And I said, wait, how are you going to do that without looking like you guys are fornicating? He said, what, what? I said, you guys are going to take a road trip together. Where are you going to stay so you don't have sex? Where are you going to stay that so when you tell people we went on a road trip and they don't instantly think you're having sex? Oh, oh, well, I don't know. I said, you need to know because the Bible, I told him this exact verse. You need to know if you're going to serve God, you have to abstain from every appearance of evil. It doesn't mean evil took place. It just, if it looks bad, you abstain from it. So I told him the story that when my wife and I were dating, we weren't even engaged yet. We were just dating. We were moving towards engagement. Her car broke down, or had an accident, and I was going out of town on business, so I let her borrow my truck, which means she's going to drive it home for a couple of days. But I told her, my truck is very distinct. Everybody knows my little bumper sticker. I said, if you park that in front of your apartment, they're going to think I'm spending the night, even though I'm a 1,000 miles away on business. So do me a favor. Park it two or three stories around the other side of the apartment complex and just walk. She had no problem with that. I'm trying to be a blessing to her, but if anybody knows my truck and knows I'm dating her and knows where her apartment is and they roll past it at five o'clock in the morning or at midnight, it looks like we're fornicating. When you're serious about God, you're serious about even the smallest commandments. 
This verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, creates a boundary prohibiting Christians from bars, prohibiting Christians from liquor stores, prohibiting Christians from dirty movies, prohibiting Christians from dirty friendships, dirty friendships from clubs. You don't go clubbing when you're a Christian. That's filthy. Vulgarities, etc. One of our young men said he was driving past this man about a year or two ago. He drove past one of our local sex stores. And he said, Pastor, I saw your truck there and my heart sank. Except that when I got up on it, it didn't have your little bumper sticker. And I rejoiced because it wasn't you. And I said, what makes you think I would ever go there in the first place? He said, I don't know. I just was convinced it was your truck. And I thought, thank God for the little yellow bat sticker on the back of my truck. But if I ever sell that truck, I'm scraping that thing off because whoever I sell it to, who knows what they're going to do with my truck. I might just blow the truck up myself and sell it for scrap so nobody can pervert my image with my truck. When you love God, this verse means a lot to you. When you don't love God, this is nothing but a hindrance to you. You call it a restraint. God calls it safety. Don't be offended if you live like a whore and people call you a whore. Don't be offended if you live like a drunk and people call you a drunk. If I came to church dressed up like Batman and people said, why are you dressed like Batman? I would have no room to be offended. Stop judging me. Pastor, you're dressed up like Batman. Stop judging me. If you don't want to be called something, don't live that way. No prayer would ever be needed for direction or permission from God to go anywhere near these places for the scriptures have already given us direction. Abstain from anything that looks evil. We've had church members who were very into cooking. They quit buying sherry cooking wine because it looks like they're buying wine and it wasn't worth it to them at the checkout line. That's a holy person. The prideful, arrogant person says, well, it's none of their business what I do at home. No, you're an arrogant, immature Christian. If it causes your brother to stumble, cut it off. Jesus said, if you willfully cause somebody to stumble, you should commit suicide with a millstone in a lake. It would be better for you that a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than to cause a Christian to stumble by your selfish lifestyle. All right, Malachi 3.8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, where have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. No prayers should be necessary concerning whether or not to give tithes and offerings. Uh, the Bible's already spoken very clearly. We don't need to pray about tithes because the Bible's clear on it. If you're still praying about the tithe, your faith in this area is immature and underdeveloped. That's why we teach on tithes and offerings every time we receive one so that your faith is maintained there. Luke 17, 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against thee, rebuke, uh, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. No prayer is ever needed concerning forgiveness. If someone has sinned against you, you must forgive them. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's what the scriptures are very clear on. You don't have to pray, Lord, should I forgive him? Should I, should I forgive her? It hurts so bad. The Bible's very clear. Forgive, 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 forgive. Not even for their sake. You forgive for your sake. So you drop the charges and you're free from all malice and bitterness. If someone has sinned against you, you must forgive them. The only prayer that may be needed is the prayer for help. Lord, I ask you to help me forgive my enemy. I want to obey you, but I need help. The Bible addresses almost every situation we may ever encounter. If you need direction, begin with studying your Bible. The quickest way, I'll tell you this, there's, 
There's two ways to get God to talk to you. Number one, open your Bible. Number two, say, Lord, show me where I'm wrong. And those two combined together, you'll hear from God before you eat lunch today. The Bible addresses almost every situation in our life. And so all we need to do is open the Bible and begin to study it. I understand that there are nuanced situations that the scriptures don't speak directly to, but if we'll study the Bible overall, we can begin to hone in on or target in on the right decision concerning ethics, concerning wisdom, concerning what glorifies God. And when the scriptures are silent on something, that's why we have six more ways to be led by God. But the broadest foundation, and in a sense, as we build this pyramid called being led by God, the biggest, broadest foundation is the scriptures. And then by my judgment, number two is wisdom because wisdom's built on scriptures. Number three is peace. Peace begins to delve into the, the spooky realm, whereas you can't put a word to it or an understanding because it's a peace that passes understanding. And then you have the Holy Spirit. Then you have preachers. Then you have the word of the Lord. Then you have God the Father. It's kind of the crown of the pyramid. But the broadest way we're led by God is by the Holy Scriptures. And if you don't study your Bible, you need to start. Understand that by not studying your Bible, you are in constant rebellion against your God. We are a generation that has been afforded a canonized Scripture that was not given to mankind for almost uh, 50, what did we say, 4,600 years. Mankind has been without this for 4,600 years of existence. You have it. You're going to be judged by God for what you did with it. Enoch had none of this, and he walked with God. Many Christians, almost all Christians in America today, have this whole thing, and they still don't walk with God. We're going to be judged according to the fullness of this word. To whom much is given, much is required, much is expected. My job as a preacher is to constantly remind you of that, constantly warn you of that. And if you don't like it, take it up with your God. I don't know what ESPN will do for you, but take it up with your God. I don't know what Zuckerberg will do for you, but Facebook will take it up with your God. I preach a different God here. I preach the God of the Bible. So let me give you some examples from my personal leadings from the Word, not from the Holy Spirit, not from a prophecy, not from a vision or a trance, my personal leadings from the Word. And as I wrote this last week, I began to realize that these, these personal leadings where I was reading the Bible and God spoke to me from the Word, these were massive milestones in my life. The massive milestones and adjustments in my life didn't come from the Holy Spirit. It didn't come from a vision or a trance. It came from Scripture. Me visually reading the scripture and on the inside, God bearing witness and saying this. It wasn't in, even in prayer. Thank God for prayer. We're not trying to diminish anything. We're trying to magnify each aspect in its proper place. So the following are scriptures the Lord used to correct, redirect, realign, or adjust my life. These verses represent milestones in my personal walk with Jesus Christ. 1996. In 1996, I had a very deep chest cold that I could not shake, nor would the prayer of faith heal. The Lord spoke the following verses to me to teach me about walking in love with my roommate. 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 30. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, talking about communion or fellowshipping with the Lord, 
eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, or many are dead prematurely. And what this passage was talking about is that you can't pretend to be right with God if you hate your brother in Christ, if you have bitterness or unforgiveness. In this situation, I had a roommate that got on my nerves. They irritated me. They were a brother in Christ, and I hated them. I would drive home and see their car in the parking lot, and my countenance would change. I would take on a sour attitude. I treated them rudely, and I could not get over this chest cold. And honestly, up until that point in my life, I was 19. I don't think I had ever been sick in my entire life. I've been hospitalized with broken bones many times, but never sick. And so this was unheard of for me to be sick. But I was in this church under Pastor Vaughn being taught about the supernatural things, the spiritual things, the divine laws of God. So I knew something wasn't right and I began to seek God. Why can't I be healed? What's wrong with me? Pastor Vaughn's laid hands on me. I'm speaking the word. And as I studied the Bible, I was just reading through Corinthians and I read this in my reading and the Lord showed me from this verse, you're sick and you will not be healed because you disrespect your roommate, Keith. And you try to act like you're right with me, but you hate your brother. And for this reason, you're sick. And I said, Lord, forgive me. And the next day I repented to Keith. And the next morning after that, I woke up and every symptom was gone and it had not left me in months. It's in that season, 1996, when I learned I cannot afford to be offended. And I can, I can honestly say since 1996, I have maybe been offended two handfuls of time, maybe at most. The preaching has never offended me. No preacher has ever offended me. Uh, only a handful of situations in 23 years have ever offended me because I learned something so powerful from the Scripture spoken to me by God confirming it in my heart. In 1998, I had a dear friend betray me. The Lord taught me about forgiveness, and Ephesians 4.32 rolled through me on a regular basis. He would say to me over and over again, every time my heart wanted to hurt at this betrayal, he would say, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's all the scripture would say to me. Forgive, forgive, even as I have for Christ's sake forgiven you. And that was a massive milestone. That's when God began to teach me very passionately how to always forgive and drop charges. That worked very well hand in hand with never being offended. In 2002, and I preach this one a lot, in 2002, God began to adjust my mouth habits and my knack for hyperbole and exaggeration using the following proverb, bread of deceit is sweet to man, but afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. It's interesting, it says deceit, but when I read that, and to be honest with you, I was using the bathroom, reading through Proverbs every day over and over and over again. I obviously was in chapter 20, and it must have been the first of the week because it's the first time I read it going through my Proverbs study. And as soon as I read the bread of deceit is sweet to a man, the Lord instantly dealt with me about exaggeration, always kind of stretching the story to get a rise out of people, make people laugh. And it struck me so convicted. I, I, I don't know how long I spent, maybe the better part of a year or two working on not exaggerating. I would make phone calls to adjust stories I told a day prior when I said, you know, Lord, I said that we were caving for 15 hours. It might have been more like 13 and a half if I think about it. I need to make that right. And I'd go back and call somebody and make it right. 
Lord, you know, I think I said I worked 65 hours last week. It might have been 64. I should make that right. That's how convicting that scripture was to me. I was in that season when the Lord had spoken to me to read Proverbs and study it over and over and over and over and over again. And the book of Proverbs really wore me out that that year I spent studying it. Because the book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom and it'll adjust your life in so many areas. But you have to give yourself over to it. Just like for the last 10 years, America has wasted their soul on social media, being discipled by pagans who don't love God, trying to earn the affection and adoration of pagans who don't want God. When you start conforming your life to get the approval of pagans and all they have to do is swipe and punch, click, you're a shallow soul. And you're worth more to God than that. So redeem yourself. Don't be so shallow. Social media makes you a shallow human being. Social media makes you a shallow human being. And Jesus Christ did not die and give you a Bible to be shallow. If you're on social media to feel affirmed or affirmation or feel accepted, you are immature and you need to walk deeper with God. Fast it so that it doesn't destroy you. I have never had a Facebook account and I've never missed anything. Amen. 2005. In 2005, I returned to this church. It was CCF in those days, Cookville Christian Fellowship from whence or where I had been gone six years, only to find this church was a den of carnal fellowship. The following verse screamed at me and confirmed that the whole of the church was headed in the wrong direction. I chose this out of New English translation. Neither should there be vulgar speech, obscene stories, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, all of which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving. When I came back to this church... Almost 15 years ago, this is the verse, this is the scripture that defined the fellowship in this church. Obscene stories, vulgar speech. I heard the most vulgar jokes told right before church started. This church had become a carnal cesspool of inequity and lawlessness. And we deserved to be wiped out for it. And it was only by the hairs of our chinny chin chin that we didn't by the mercy of God. And I will never let this church march back in that damnable position again, which is why I preach so hard, because I know how close we were to being wiped out. This church would not exist. But this verse right here, when I'd say, Lord, what's wrong? I'd read, Ephesians would scream at me. Vulgar speech, obscene stories, coarse jesting. Everything was about how dirty can you get? Who can you make blush with another perverse joke? right before we go into service. I'm almost ashamed to even talk about it. Thankfully, most of the folks guilty of that are either dead or gone. Anybody else guilty of it repented of it and is ashamed of it. And if you're still not ashamed of it, I would really wonder what's still in you. That was a massive adjustment in my life to realize just because the Holy Spirit shows up in a service doesn't mean God's pleased with anything. And it doesn't mean the people want God either. In 2008, about nine months of pastoring, I still refused to receive any kind of financial compensation. And Pastor Jerry Kloster rebuked me. Marlon and I were having dinner with Pastor Jerry there in Michigan. 
And Pastor Jerry rebuked me with the following verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 13. For what is it, Paul said, for what is it wherein you were inferior to the other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Paul was saying, I've never received an offering from you. And this has made you inferior because I've not been a burden to you. And he said, forgive me this wrong. So Pastor Jerry rebuked me with that verse and he said, you're wrong for not receiving a paycheck from your church. And by not receiving a paycheck from your church, you're making it an inferior church. Is that what you want for your church, Pastor Chris? And I said, no. And Marlon kicked me under the table because Marlon and the elders had been trying to push me to start to receive some kind of compensation. I was working full time at that time. The church could have afforded it, but I, I refused to take it. Just ignorance and maybe wanting to help the church out financially. So at that point, I began to receive, I think, a couple hundred bucks a month. And then we finally went full-time salary when I went full-time and resigned from the zinc mine. That was a massive adjustment, that scripture right there. It wasn't a thus says the Lord, it was thus says the scripture. And I can't argue with scripture when it's so clearly put forth. 2010. In 2010, God began to deal with me to have meetings at church both departmental and leadership. This was hard on me because when I took over this church, this church didn't believe in meetings of any kind. We just swung from the rafters and were led by everything. But God began to deal with me. We need to have meetings. We need to have meetings. I thought, well, Lord, there's no culture in this church for meetings. How will I begin to take precious time away from these folks? And that was even before social media sucks the life out of your soul. I was weary of meetings like this in that, not tired of them, but that I was cautious. Will the people be willing to do this? Do, do we really need to have meetings? Do, do, are meetings required to advance a church? Can't we just be led by the Spirit? <laughs> That's the problem with charismatics. All they want is the, the ethereal, spooky realm because it makes them f seem mystical and like a guru. The Lord dealt with me from the following verse, Proverbs 27, 23. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. And the Lord dealt with me basically that meetings are one way you can look diligently to the state of your flocks. Meetings are one way to be diligent, look well, and to know the state of my flock. And so we began to do that. We began to have leadership meetings. We began to have departmental meetings. We began to write curriculum. We began to systematically imp implement governments and administrations. And that is what really took our church in 2010 from being what we were, some kind of gooey, lawless, mystical realm of crazy maddocks to a, a church that is actually preaching around the world every week now and advancing things. It takes organization and discipline. And all of this was not by the Holy Spirit, but by the Scriptures speaking because they can't be argued with. Final thought. God's Word is His will revealed. The better you know His Word, the better you will know His heart and understand His will. Reading the Bible is the quickest way to hear from God, and it is the primary, the numero uno, number one way God will lead us. Open up your Bible and he will speak to you. In fact, one church talked about, one man of God says, God's word, my Bible is God speaking to me. And that's a good confession. That's a good thing to, to declare and believe that God's word, my Bible is God Almighty speaking to me. Think about it. 66 books written just for you. 
Almost 32,000 verses written just for you. And in them, God, the divine, the eternal supreme being, our Savior, Jesus Christ, he reveals to you himself. No boyfriend or girlfriend ever wrote you this much, especially not with texting. It's communicated with thumbs. It isn't very important. Amen. Father, we thank you for this second lesson on being led of God. We thank you for the scriptures being our primary way. We're all educated. We are all literate. We all have the ability. Make us, cause us to be disciplined, cause us to be hungry enough to study your Bible every day. May the Bible not intimidate us. May the old English not intimidate us. May we find a more modern language. But Father, may we be students of your word so we can be accurate and know our God. Bless these lessons on Pod School in the future for all that listen to it. In Jesus' name, amen.